0: This is the fifth lecture in Innovate One Zero Three, entitled Climate, Companies, and Click Workers. It begins by looking at some of the coolest applications of machine learning I've come across over the last few years, paying special attention to the use of AI in reducing greenhouse gas emissions and tackling climate change. We'll then turn to the AI startup industry, looking at how most companies that claim to use AI actually rely on human labor to fulfill their supposedly algorithmic tasks. Hopefully, you come away from this lecture appreciating that most current applications of AI are not disrupting the fabric of human life. Rather, AI is an amplifier that can exacerbate problems or expedite their solutions. Let's dive in. Part 1. AI for Good Imagine a person who grew up loving computers and math. They tinkered with electronics their whole life, took every science course they could in high school, was part of a computer club, majored in software engineering in undergrad, participated in hackathons, and out of university got an amazing job working at a leading tech company in their medical technology division, trying to develop algorithms to improve cardiac imaging. They are 10 years into this job, making an excellent wage with fantastic friends and teammates when they learn that the company they work for has secretly been working with the Department of Defense developing surveillance technology for combat drones. They also begin seeing reports which show that some algorithms they had a hand in developing are biased against people of color. What can they do? Quit their job? Organize a petition? Retrain into a new field? This is not a hypothetical, of course. As more and more commentators have dug into the AI world and pointed out these problems, engineers and computer scientists have been forced to reflect on whether their work is actually doing good for the world. We've seen a number of different responses from AI researchers over the decade. There are people like Meredith Whitaker, who worked for Google but helped organize an employee protest over Project Maven before quitting the company entirely. Whitaker is a co-founder of the AI Now Institute, which produces research on the social effects of AI, many of which we've discussed in this class. Or take, for instance, Kentaro Toyama, who helped establish a Microsoft research branch in India. But after five years attempting to solve social problems with technology, he concluded in an op-ed that technology is not the answer. Instead, noting that the key issues he worked on were always solved by better human partnerships and local solutions, not universal technological ones. At the same time, many computer scientists and engineers have established programs within big companies and at universities advocating data for good or AI for good. One example is Delta Analytics, a nonprofit founded by AI researcher Sarah Hooker in 2013. The idea is that people who work at Facebook or Google can volunteer their time doing pro bono work for charities and other nonprofits. A similar organization is called DataKind, and it has a team of statisticians and data scientists that volunteer, for instance, with organizations that try to detect potential food shortages early, or in one case, using data to prevent home fires. There are also many programs for undergraduate and graduate students in computer science. One of them is AI for Good, a summer boot camp for women in AI in Montreal. There's another summer program at UBC called Data Science for Social Good. There's another prominent one at Carnegie Mellon, and yet another at the University of Chicago, and an increasing number of AI for Good workshops at the major machine learning conferences around the world. There are, of course, disagreements about the value of these endeavors. To people who view the whole AI enterprise as an overreach of technology, they will likely not look too kindly when a data for good nonprofit starts collecting data to, quote unquote, solve homelessness. On the flip side, would you rather data scientists be spending their time improving ad click through rates on Snapchat? or working on solving genuinely pressing problems in local governments, healthcare institutions, and social enterprises. But sometimes it's not so easy. One example is that Intel partnered with some NGOs to develop software that could use movement detection to label illegal poachers in the African savannah. But as one critic argues, quote, The AI camera still won't detect the causes of poaching. Corruption, disregarding the rule of law, poverty, smuggling, and the recalcitrant demand for ivory. Those who still cling to technological solutionism are operating under the false assumption that because a company's AI application might work in one narrow area, it will work on a broad political and social problem that has vexed society for ages. Bearing this important critique in mind, I still do think that there are AI applications that solve important humanitarian, medical, and social problems and which are worth celebrating. What follows is a list of some of my favorite uses of machine learning that have stood out to me as impressive, valuable, or downright cool. Let's start with the area of medicine, where the best work is probably being done in Andrew Ng's group at Stanford University. In 2016 and 2017, they trained convolutional neural networks that could detect heart arrhythmias from electrocardiograms, or ECGs, more accurately than cardiologists. Another model, called ChexNet, could detect pneumonia in chest x-rays more accurately than radiologists. A later model from 2018 called Chex Next. That is, the first one is Chex C H E che, X, like chest x-ray net, like neural network. The, the follow-on is called ChexNext. It sounds like breakfast cereals. Chexnext could detect 14 different types of pathologies like pulmonary masses, nodules, and pleural effusion, or a buildup of fluid outside the lungs. This neural network achieved radiologist-level performance on 11 of the 14 conditions it was able to detect. And just last year, this same group of researchers at Stanford presented an even more important contribution, a data set of 224,000 chest radiographs made publicly available for other researchers to use. As we've seen in this course, standardized data sets like ImageNet or MNIST or in this case, Chexpert, are one of the central drivers of progress in AI. These deep convolutional neural networks used in medical imaging are not only more accurate than their human counterparts, but they're also thousands of times faster since they are simply parsing pixels on a screen at the speed of light. The algorithm also never gets tired, so once it's accurate... It's accurate forever, unlike humans, who can be overwhelmed, stressed, tired, or just having a bad day. The World Health Organization estimates that 4 billion people worldwide lack access to medical imaging expertise, so these technologies have the potential to be truly transformative on a global scale. That being said, these algorithms have only ever been tested in limited research settings. We're going to speak in more detail next week about how they're being introduced into the clinic and some of the concerns around privacy and safety that arise from AI diagnostic tools. Let me just add one more thing. This chest X-ray neural network had 121 layers. That makes it absolutely impenetrable to understanding what's happening inside of the neural network. It's being fed all of the pixels in the image of an X-ray, and then each pixel undergoes 121 transformations according to mathematical rules based not only on its value, but on the value of all the other pixels in the image. Imagine, hypothetically, that an X-ray image has a 1,000 pixels, Then, for those among you who are mathematically inclined, you need to think of a function with a thousand inputs, and we need to calculate the partial derivatives for each one of those inputs. Remember in calculus class how hard it was to visualize three-dimensional functions? Now try to visualize and understand the behavior of an a thousand-dimensional one. By the way, this whole thing really makes a mockery of Minsky and Papert who argued that the problems with a single-layer perceptron would simply carry over to higher-layer neural networks. They never could have guessed when they published their book that neural networks would be beating our best radiologists at diagnostic imaging. Adjacent to medicine, I'd like to highlight a company that's doing important work in public health. Blue Dot. They're a Canadian company based in Toronto, which tracks outbreaks of infectious diseases around the world and has a global early warning system. They sounded the alarm on the potential of a COVID-19 pandemic well before it was international news and published a very early paper tracking exactly how the disease might spread through international air travel. One of the most important problems right now in biology is protein folding. If you remember the fundamental dogma of molecular biology, it's that DNA makes RNA makes proteins. So in a sense, the whole purpose of the genetic code is to describe chains of amino acids, which then make up proteins in our body and in our cells. Understanding how precisely these amino acid chains are configured is essential to drug development, since knowing the shape of a protein can help explain its function in the cell. There have recently been some incredible crowdsourced efforts to solve this protein folding problem. On the website Foldit, you can basically try to solve protein structures as though they're a video game or a puzzle. But there has long been work trying to use machine learning to solve this problem, too. We can train a neural network on known protein structures and then have it try to guess what a given amino acid chain might look like as a protein. DeepMind recently did just this, and earlier this year, published a paper with a neural network that could predict the distances between amino acids and the angles between chemical bonds that connect those amino acids better than anything that had come before. This neural network, called AlphaFold, won the 2018 Critical Assessment of Protein Structure Prediction Competition, and as you can see, clearly winning big competitions in a particular task whether it's computer vision or protein folding, is a huge part of the AI world. In another win in the world of the microscopic, an international team in 2019 trained a model to improve the signal-to-noise ratio of various types of microscope to make their images clearer. Scanning electron microscopes and laser confocal microscopes face a trade-off, between imaging speed and pixel resolution. This means that a higher resolution image requires more scanning time, which means that users of highly in-demand, extremely expensive microscopes have to sometimes accept less high-resolution images in exchange for speed. So, this international team used a training set consisting of very high-quality images to generate a model that could improve lower-resolution images. These techniques are already ready to go at the Salk Institute, where scientists can send in their microscopy images to be touched up. AI is also doing huge things for accessibility technology. Text-to-speech and speech-to-text technologies have improved dramatically with neural networks, and that means better tools for people with visual impairments, hearing impairments, dyslexia, or other learning disabilities. Image recognition is also doing wonders for accessibility on the Internet. With every year of improved benchmarks on ImageNet, that's another step Towards the automatic labeling of images on every website, which enables blind people to use the web smoothly. AI is equally helping people with physical disabilities, aiding in the development of prosthetic limbs. One of the central challenges in prosthetics is being able to turn signals from peripheral nerves for instance, the nerves in an arm or a leg, into meaningful signals that can be interpreted by a device. Once again, machine learning is an effective tool for separating signal from noise. One team at the University of Michigan pioneered a new surgical technique which, combined with machine learning, yielded a robotic hand that gave four volunteers control of individual fingers for an entire year. The coolest thing about this, in my opinion, is that the machine learning model is able to readjust its parameters in response to the person using the prosthetic hand, so the technology learns how to respond to the user rather than the other way around. For me, these latter examples are some of the most exciting applications of AI. There is a huge amount of low-hanging fruit here, for cutting-edge technologies to support people with disabilities. If you're an engineer listening to this, trying to decide what to do with your machine learning skill set, my personal recommendation is that the coolest neural networks out there are still the ones in the brain. So go work on those. While it feels good to be able to celebrate the incredible work being done in AI labs around the world, it's also important to recognize that these new technologies bring new challenges. How will medical technology ensure people's privacy is protected? How can we make sure that these tools are available to all people equitably and not just for the rich? How can we make sure that they actually work in real-world settings with diverse populations before they're rolled out? These are the questions we'll be looking at in great detail next week. For now, though, I'd like to turn to how machine learning can help address what is almost certainly the greatest problem facing the world right now. Climate change. Part 2. Stopping Warming with cool ai here is a very brief primer on how climate change works when sunlight hits the earth some of it reflects off the atmosphere oceans and surface of the earth back into space but some of it is trapped and re-radiates back onto the earth this is called the greenhouse effect and it's made worse by the presence of certain gases in the atmosphere, most notably carbon dioxide and methane. Carbon dioxide is an essential molecule that is present in almost all life on Earth, but it is released in massive quantities when fossil fuels, that is, the remains of organisms buried in rock and subjected to millennia of heat and pressure, are burned to generate energy a human practice that originated only in the last 300 years. Methane is prominent in a particular type of fossil fuel called natural gas, which is often used for electricity generation, but is also emitted in large amounts through agriculture, through a process that's called ruminant digestion and enteric fermentation, but which I would prefer to call cow burps and farts. There is a consensus among scientists that human activities that release greenhouse gases are the cause of global climate change. The outcomes of this process include a warmer planet, the melting of glaciers, sea level rise, deleterious effects to crops, wildfires, droughts, extreme weather events, and much more. And not only is there a consensus among scientists But there's also a consensus about that consensus. That is, if you look at all the studies which attempt to quantify the scientific consensus, all of those studies agree that something like 97% of the relevant experts agree with the story I've laid out here. What are the main sources of greenhouse gas emissions? We've already discussed... The burning of fossil fuels, but which industries and sectors of society are burning the most? Well, let me break it down. First, 25%, one quarter, of emissions come from the generation of electricity. That is, simply creating electric power accounts for one quarter of global emissions. This is because the most common methods of generating electricity are through burning fossil fuels. The burning of these fossil fuels then boils water. We then use the steam to turn a crank that moves an electromagnetic motor, which generates electricity. There are other ways of generating power to move that electric motor, such as using the power of moving water, or using controlled nuclear reactions to heat up water, to generate steam, to turn a crank, to move an electromotor. That's what nuclear energy is. There are also techniques which require no moving cranks at all, such as solar power, which uses photons from the sun to create an electric current. Regardless, the main global methods of electricity production are still decidedly not green, and many places on Earth are still using coal. Where does the world's electricity go? The vast majority of it is used in buildings, homes, and industrial facilities, though increasingly it's going to electric vehicles. This could lead to a situation where an electric car, which releases no emissions itself, could be running on electricity that was generated at a hugely emitting coal power plant. So, one-quarter of emissions, electricity. An equal amount comes from agriculture, forestry, and other land use. Deforestation, that is, cutting down trees to create farms or houses or something else, releases massive quantities of carbon dioxide. Around one-third of the land on Earth is used for agriculture, and the expansion and maintenance of agricultural land, things like Converting grassland into pasture, burning of savanna or forests, and the plowing and overturning of soil are all emitters of greenhouse gases. As I've already mentioned, livestock like cows release massive quantities of methane through their digestive processes. There is also a huge quantity of nitrogen in fertilizer, which can contribute to the presence of nitrous oxide, yet another greenhouse gas. So the sum total of this, the creation of land to grow plants to feed humans, the use of fertilized land to grow feed for animals, the animals' digestion of their food that creates methane in their stomachs, and then the packaging and selling of this food, all of that accounts for a quarter of global emissions. So between electricity and agriculture and forestry, that's one half of all emissions covered. How about the other half? Well, 21% is industry, that is, factory manufacturing processes that use fossil fuels or other heavily emitting chemicals. 14% is transportation, cars, trucks, trains, passenger and cargo flights, and boats that transport freight across oceans and keep global supply chains afloat. The rest is some combination of other factors, for instance, buildings whose cooling and heating requires tons of energy, emissions from landfill, or even power usage by Bitcoin miners. That was a lot, but it's important to understand the root contributors to climate change in order to appreciate how machine learning can be used to tackle it. But before then, I should say that the AI industry itself has a massive climate toll. As we've seen, deep learning models are huge. Millions or billions of nodes with millions or billions of connections between them, each one of which needs to be fine-tuned. The amount of computer power this takes is unimaginably large, and one study demonstrated that training a transformer model like GPT-2 can have an equivalent carbon footprint to five American cars. And this is just training a model once. In the research process, you typically develop a model, then train it, then refine it, then retrain it, then re-refine it, then re-retrain it, perhaps thousands of times before you get to the final product. This is clearly a huge climate change issue in and of itself, and if we're not careful, the over-application of AI might cause more climate problems than it solves. With this preamble in place, let's look at some ways that machine learning can be used to tackle climate change. Everything I'm about to tell you comes from a gargantuan 100-page paper on climate change and AI, which is very conveniently repackaged on the website climatechange.ai. Let's start with electricity. One of the most difficult problems in electricity generation is forecasting the usage of the electric grid. Electricity cannot simply sit in wires once it's produced, and we certainly don't want an electricity shortage, so the amount of electricity produced and consumed needs to be nearly equal at all times. Machine learning can be used to predict how much electricity we need to generate at any given time. You can imagine a machine learning model that is trained on all of the electricity usage data from homes and businesses over the course of a few years and is then able to better predict how much electricity we can expect to use in the future. It's worth noting that in Canada, often when we generate excess electricity, we end up paying the United States to take it off of our grid lines. This excess is costly and wasteful. As we transition to renewable sources like solar and wind, which are more unpredictable because of changing weather conditions, we will still need some small reserve of more dependable sources like natural gas. The task of deciding when to switch between these sources on the grid is a surprisingly complicated one, And some people are already experimenting with reinforcement learning to balance the electric grid in real time. Another potential application of machine learning is in accelerating the development of nuclear fusion reactors. Fusion holds the potential to be a completely transformative source of energy. Fusion reactors, like current nuclear reactors which rely on fission, involve controlling nuclear reactions that have the potential to be extremely dangerous. Machine learning can help ensure that the superheating and cooling of hydrogen in a fusion reactor is done safely. One final electricity application. Right now, natural gas is delivered through pipelines— which, despite our transition to greener energies, will still be around for a long time. So it's important to ensure that there are no methane leaks in these pipelines. Sensors and satellites can use machine learning to detect methane, which can then be rapidly patched up by human operators. Let's now look at agriculture and forests. One of the highest leverage applications of technology in farming is simply figuring out where exactly the greenhouse gas emissions are coming from. When crops are harvested, or forests are maintained, or animals graze in pastures, it's hard to know precisely the source of emissions. This is because we cannot see greenhouse gases directly, but hyperspectral cameras can and they can observe the sources of carbon dioxide, methane, or nitrous oxide. Much like with the microscope example I gave above, machine learning can be used to make this data as signalful as possible so that we can better understand the source of emissions in order to control them. Another major application of machine learning in farming is precision agriculture, This term describes a constellation of technologies, including irrigation systems that only distribute water where it's absolutely needed, cameras that can detect weeds, targeted pesticide applications, and much more. The goal of precision agriculture is to move away from a model where massive machines need to cover homogenous land areas. Creating these huge farmlands requires stripping the land of trees, and aggressive tilling of soil, both of which release huge quantities of carbon from the earth. With precision agriculture, we can hope to stick with the natural variation in land and target growing with the help of robots. We've also discussed the huge emissions toll of deforestation, much of which comes from illegal or non-authorized logging, Particularly nefarious here is the practice of clear cutting, which involves eliminating all of the trees in a given area instead of selective cutting. One of the more extreme solutions to this problem is to use old smartphones powered by solar panels and trained on a neural network to detect the sound of chainsaws. On to transportation. The number one way to reduce greenhouse gas emissions from transportation is to simply cut the amount of transportation happening in the world. There is no substitute for fewer planes, cars, and ships on the roads and in the seas. Let's start with shipping. Global shipping is the process of taking goods that exist in various parts of the world and delivering them to other places in the most efficient routes possible without any redundancies. This is almost a textbook example of a computer science and mathematics problem called the traveling salesman. The problem is that there are far too many global shipping lanes run by far too many companies and contractors for any one human to make sense of it all. Machine learning can be used to optimize these routes so that you don't get into a situation where, for instance, seafood is caught in California, frozen, sent to China, where it's processed, shucked, and refrozen, then sent back to California and served with the label Locally Caught. The problem with this is that no one on either side of this operation knows what the other is doing. From the perspective of the Californian fishers, they're sending their catch to China to have it processed. They are unaware that it's coming right back to California days later. From the perspective of the Chinese workers, they're just getting a routine seafood shipment, and they don't know where it's going next. Now imagine the redundancies on every single shipping route around the world. That's the scale we're talking about here. Another place machine learning can be helpful is by improving bus schedules. Public transportation companies keep records of times of high and low demand, and machine learning can be used to help optimize schedules so that bus routes are covering the largest possible number of people in the largest possible area in the most efficient way. There's also shared mobility. Uber Pool is an example. The more people who can fit into a car and be collectively transported on the same route— the fewer individual cars that need to be on the roads. However, it's unclear whether this will actually help by reducing the number of cars or whether ride-sharing programs will actually just result in more people using cars rather than more affordable public transportation options to get around. Beyond reducing the quantity of transport, the next best thing we can do is electrify it. If the electricity that's used to charge an electric vehicle comes from a renewable source, then electric cars can be a truly transformative technology. One use of machine learning that's already in place with electric vehicles is in managing their battery usage. Another up-and-coming application is to have electric cars that aren't in use— while they're plugged into the grid, be used as energy storage to maintain a constant load on the grid. When I need to pause because when I learned this, this kind of blew my mind. The idea that overnight when your electric vehicle is sitting in the garage or, or wherever it's charging, the amount of charge that happens in the car will fluctuate in accordance with the needs of the grid so that instead of actually generating more electricity at the source, which could mean burning fossil fuels, they can detract the electricity from your car a little bit or add more charge back in as the fluctuations happen. Incredible. Before I discuss the final category of ways that machine learning can be used for climate change, I want to emphasize something at this point. Notice that machine learning is not in any of these cases creating some kind of new transformative solution, but rather it is a tool that sits on top of existing systems to make them more efficient or safe. I want to contrast this with a common idea or narrative in the tech world, which is that the reason we build AI is to solve intelligence. Once intelligence is solved, some say, we can build a system far smarter than any human which will be able to solve climate change for us. Maybe this is possible in some incredibly distant future, but it has no bearing whatsoever on how the world works now and what the world needs from technology. All right, let's round off this discussion with a few more miscellaneous items. First, buildings. One half of the energy used in buildings on Earth is for heating and cooling. In fact, there is a vicious cycle at play here where the hotter the Earth gets, the more air conditioning is used. But air conditioning generates a huge amount of heat, both because it works by pushing heat out into the buildings that it tries to cool, and because of the sheer volume of electricity needed to run the world's 2 billion air conditioning units. Machine learning can be used in air conditioning, heating, and refrigeration systems to predict times of high demand and make sure they're only being used when absolutely necessary. And one final example here, just for good measure, there are currently applications of machine learning in self-driving cars or autonomous vehicles where the cars can drive extremely close together to reduce the uh, air friction or drag that they experience. And machine learning can be used to help coordinate precisely where these cars must be to safely travel in a pack and reduce that friction, which allows them to consume much less energy. Okay, I'm going to stop there, but the examples I've given here represent only one-third of the paper that we are discussing. I would strongly encourage you to visit climatechange.ai to dig in deeper. Once again, my main take-home message is that yes, machine learning does have the capacity to change the world, but not in any ways that you would recognize from the movies. More often, it looks like adding some small piece of hardware with a neural network onto a pre-existing sensor system in an air conditioning unit or downloading shipping route datasets and trying to minimize redundancies. Few of these applications will make the news, but if AI is going to change the world for the better, this is how it will happen. Part 3. Companies and Click Workers In August of 2019, a company called Scale became a unicorn, which is Silicon Valley speak, for having a valuation of over a billion dollars. The company is led by 22-year-old MIT dropout Alexander Wang, and its goal is to accelerate the development of AI applications. I would invite you to actually pause at this point, if you can, and look up on YouTube the video Life at Scale. As you'll see, if you're watching the video, it's a pretty standard-looking Silicon Valley company, A bunch of young people in an open plan office working together on technological problems. But as you're watching, I want you to guess, what does this company actually do? There's a lot of talk in the video about innovation, about the infrastructure needed for AI, about training people to use their platform, and they are expanding globally to work on global issues. They collaborate with OpenAI, Lyft, Pinterest, and Airbnb. But what does this actually mean? As you're watching, what does this company actually do? I would like to encourage you to take this attitude to all companies, whether in AI or not, in technology or anywhere. They, they will shroud a lot of their information in business speak. And you should really ask, what are they actually doing? Well, in this case, Scale is a data labeling company. If you are a company like Waymo... Google's self driving subsidiary, and you need images of trees and stop signs labeled, you send your millions of pictures to Scale. Scale then sends those images not to the dozens of 20 something year olds in their San Francisco office, but rather to tens of thousands of data labelers, mostly in the Philippines and Venezuela. These labelers then spend their days essentially solving CAPTCHA problems. They put boxes around images of cars, identify vegetables to be used in automated grocery store checkout software, and stare at aerial drone footage of neighborhoods to label houses and businesses from above. Like with the Amazon Mechanical Turk workers we spoke about in an earlier lecture, these contractors are paid a fraction of the wage that their American counterparts would make. Now, I don't want to weigh in on the complicated dynamics of this type of labor. Hiring workers from economically deprived parts of the world can lift up individuals who wouldn't be able to find work otherwise. In many cases, companies like Scale are a savior to their contractors doing this data labeling work. At the same time, there are strong arguments to be made against a business model that employs tens of thousands of people in other countries but does not generate sustainable wealth in those places. My goal is merely to show that data labelers make this AI possible. So every time you think about work being done in AI, it is these labelers that you should keep at the front of mind. Another way to illustrate the importance of data labeling is simply by considering the machine learning research lifecycle. Consider the problem we discussed earlier of labeling 200,000 images of chest x-rays. It might take years of work from radiologists, engineers, and hired data labelers to get that data set into a shape where it's good enough to be used by machine learning researchers. That team of ML engineers might consist of a half dozen PhD students at Stanford who can pioneer some new state-of-the-art method to better classify those x-ray images. In terms of human labor hours, there is no question that the data work is much more intensive. Now, imagine that if instead of simple images, we're working with continuous video footage of a grocery store or a city street. One estimate is that one hour of video, taken at 30 frames per second, would take about 800 human hours to annotate. Another study showed that for the typical machine learning project, about 20% of the work hours involve creating and refining algorithms while 80% involves data. Of course, Scale is not the only company in this business, far from it. Another company called Hive has 700,000 data labelers in 33 different countries, mainly in India. Another called Cloud Factory allows you to, quote, leverage the power of managed cloud workers to label your data set. It is not an exaggeration to suggest that between Mechanical Turks workers and all the people working for data labeling companies around the world, there are well over a million people working full-time in this profession. For comparison, there are probably 300,000 AI engineers and fewer than 50,000 AI researchers in the world. Not only is there hidden labor going into the labeling of data, but many companies that purport to use AI are actually simply using humans to perform their supposedly automated task. You've surely had a situation where you've interacted with a customer service helper online and wondered if you're talking to a human or a robot. But I'd like to invite you to flip this around because oftentimes when you're interacting with something you're certain is a robot, you should start wondering whether you're actually interacting with a human. For instance, KiwiBots are food delivery robots that are regularly spotted on the UC Berkeley campus. These little rolling robots are undoubtedly cute and entertaining, but they are far from autonomous. They are controlled by remote workers in Colombia who monitor their path and send these robots instructions and directions every five seconds. Another example is a self-driving truck company called Starsky, which sold its customers the premise of having autonomous long-haul trucks. But it is actually just a traditional trucking business with human drivers carrying most of the freight. To the public, they still marketed as an autonomous trucking company, but that was just not the reality. Similarly, companies that claim to optimize your web design, build apps for you, schedule your calendar, solve your logistics problems, and debug your code with AI are in many, many cases just hiring humans, largely in India, the Philippines, Venezuela, and Colombia, to do that work on their behalf. A rather crude way to sum this up in a tweet might be, For most companies, AI means actual Indians and ML means manual labeling. I'd like to end this lecture by talking about some of the complexities of data labeling. Gone are the days where the job of a data labeler was to look at a picture of the number three and identify it as such, or simply saying, yes, this is an apple. What modern AI systems require is much more precise. An image of a car on a busy street, for instance, might require the labeler to sketch around every single contour of that car. Have you ever tried to manually cut a person out of a photo on Photoshop or some other editing software, but you always end up with a little piece of the background going into your cropping? That is the job of a data labeler all day. On the more dystopian end, facial recognition software requires extremely precise labeling of human faces. In some cases, labelers are identifying 100 distinct points on a given face, putting dots on the image to identify every single contour and feature. In many cases, they might also have to identify the gender and race of these faces. Needless to say, both gender and race as categories are complex and ultimately socially constructed. There is no true objective basis on which one can discern a person's gender or race from an image of their face. People can be transgender, non-binary, or intersex. And in the case of race, well, these labeling systems are simply reinforcing historically entrenched norms about racial classification. All of this work has eerie echoes back to 19th century phrenology and craniometry, where scientists would try to use the characteristics of people's skulls to predict their behavior. How about ImageNet? We spoke in lecture number two about its sheer complexity and importance in the history of computer vision. It's a database of 14 million images across tens of thousands of categories. ImageNet uses nested categories to classify all of its data. So, for instance, chair might be housed under the category furniture, which might sit under furnishings, which in turn sits under objects, which in turn sits under artifacts. But if we dig into these categories further— we see that this task of labeling images can very quickly become a murky one. Under the category people, there are labels for grandfather, dad, CEO, scientist, retiree, and retailer, along with labels for races, nationalities, and economic status. It will come as no surprise that stereotypes about which types of people look the part for which professions carries over to the way that these images are labeled here. Many of the images of people in the ImageNet database are pulled directly from Google image searches, sometimes without the consent of the people involved in those photos, and they too must be tagged. If you're given a photo of a man in a football jersey sitting on his couch, which of the labels do you choose? Do you pick white man, father, slob? Loser? These are real-life examples from ImageNet. The list goes on. Needless to say, this is an extremely slippery endeavor, especially when these labeled images are considered ground-truth data to train machine learning systems. So, where are we left after all of this? Well, like most things worthy of any sustained study, AI is complicated. On the one hand, machine learning has the potential to make life better for many people. It can improve accessibility, speed up science, and make medical diagnostics more accurate and safe. There are also a number of places where it can make a substantial impact on climate change. On the other hand, we must recognize that these advances do not happen in a void. They require countless hours of data labeling done by people whose contributions to machine learning are rarely recognized. We must also acknowledge that in labeling images, we are imposing our worldview and our politics onto our data. These things don't happen in a vacuum, and so the way that our data is structured will inevitably reflect how our society thinks about race and gender, among many other things. This is not inherently a problem, necessarily, but it does become a problem when the people constructing these datasets and using them in technology are not aware of their possible biases and failings and taking measures to address them. As we'll see in a couple weeks, biased AI algorithms stem from biased data, as they say, garbage in, garbage out. And understanding how that data is generated is the first step to solving this problem. The original motto of DeepMind was, Solve intelligence, then use that to solve everything else. This is a fantasy. Technology is incredible and has an essential place to play in our world. But humans alone can solve human problems.